0: I wanted to hear somebody care about what his last days were going to look like, because this was going to kill him one way or another.
1: From Wyoming Public Media, this is Human Nature, real stories where humans and our habitat meet. I'm Caroline Ballard. This time, we'll hear from a woman navigating one of the most fundamental aspects of nature, death, and what's left behind. Felicia Friesma lives in Los Angeles, and in 2008, she met Steve Julian. She was in her 30s, and he had just turned 50. They had both been married before, and she was a little hesitant at first.
0: He was way more ready to move forward than I was. I was just coming off of a broken marriage and so I was being a little cautious and he was he was like no no I already know what I want (laughs) (laughs) let's do this he was pretty decisive about that and I was kind of being you know cautiously optimistic so um, but it ended up working out really well it was it was one of those uh, miracle relationships he he taught me that a relationship could be about not having judgment, or having those moments of unconditional acceptance, or complete vulnerability without fear. It saddens me that I didn't know that before, but it it makes me happy to know that together we, we became each other's safe space.
1: As they built a safe space in their relationship, they worked to create a mirror of it in their physical surroundings. Felicia soon moved into the house Steve had bought just a few years earlier, a little cottage in the middle of L.A. And in it, they saw an escape.
0: The house was built in in 1924. And We were thinking forward to 2024, to the 100-year anniversary of the house, and we started looking into some of the history, the previous owners who used to live there, and so we were trying to figure out what the original design for the house was, and how could we honor that, and what were some of the things we wanted to do. So we had a whole list of projects. Re-landscaping, solar panels, re-piping the house, um, remodeling the kitchen. We wanted to get chickens. (laughs) I so wanted to install a coop with chickens. We worked really hard to make our home an oasis, and not just for us. I mean, we, people would come to our home and and always talk about the vibe that was there, the fact that it was very chill and relaxing, and it, how surprising that was because we're less than five minutes from downtown L.A. And how could it be that in the middle of Los Angeles you would have this sort of bucolic like cottage. And it looks like a it looked like a little English cottage. It was it was built at a time of kit houses and, and craftsmen's. And so it's it's a little English-style cottage with gabled roof and arched doorways and glass doorknobs. And between the fruit trees and the various garden plants I planted, it didn't smell like a city. It smelled like an arboretum or you know, a botanical garden. It was sweet and floral and really pleasant. There were a lot of places to sit and just enjoy the view or read a book. And it really was the magical place where we were
1: able to sort of recenter ourselves. The refuge they found in each other and in their little garden cottage was sorely needed. They both worked high-powered jobs Felicio was the director of marketing and communications for a public transit agency. And Steve was the morning edition host at L.A.'s NPR station, KPCC, getting up super early every day to help Southern Californians wake up. This producer, Nick, would tell me stories about
0: how Steve would mess with him on hitting the post. Steve had been doing this for so long that he would drag out sentences or speed them up at certain points and he would do it the entire time not looking at the clock he'd just look at his producer through the window and hit the post within a half a second (laughs) 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 which which as someone in radio i'm sure you understand exactly (laughs) what that means (laughs) probably drove him crazy (laughs) It did. But it also, Nick was telling me, because it was one of those moments where you realized how much of a pro Steve was at this. Like, he knew this job and this work so well that he had the clock in his head. And he would just, I think every professional who is in some way an artist, they try to push the limits of what their talents are, what their capabilities are. And, and I don't think this situation was any different, just the parameters, the details were different. You know, instead of pushing the limits of color or sculpture, he was pushing time. And he would find ways to calculate a sentence in his head in such a way that it would just dovetail perfectly into that particular moment so that it hit the next piece of the... The program, just perfectly. It's
2: 33. This is 89.3 KPCC. I'm Steve Julian. This weekend, dozens of Southern Californians plan to mark
1: Steve even march roped through. Felicia into recording a promo together for a pledge drive in
2: 2010. A day in the life of Steve Julian, KPCC Morning Edition host. Listen, are you awake? I have to go. What? I have to go to work now, but uh, I, I, I left your laptop on my pillow.
0: What time is
2: it? It's 3.30. I have to go to work. Why is my laptop on the pillow? So you can renew your membership. You said last night before we went to bed that you would do that this morning, remember? Uh, right now? Well, it'll, it'll take you two minutes, and then you can go back to sleep and be all done with it.
0: Uh, okay. 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 Okay, okay, I'll do it right now.
2: That's it. Okay. Oh, good. Thank you. You're welcome, sweetie. All right, I got to go. I love you. I love you, too. Right, see you. Bye-bye. Pledge wake. Don't make Steve Julian come to your house at 3 30 in the morning to take your pledge. Become a member now at kpcc.org and we'll let you sleep in.
1: In 2014, after a few more fund drives and home renovations, Steve got a check from a tax return he'd refiled. And he's like, Well, what are we going to do with this money? And I said,
0: Jokingly, we were in our office, and our desk was this sort of a Victoria and Albert arrangement where um, we had this giant table. It was a dining table, but we used it as a desk for both of us. And our computers were back to back, and we faced each other. And I said, "Well, you got a ring to buy, don't you?" <laughs> and he he kind of stops and he tilts his head, and then I'm typing something, and then I see his hand appear over. My monitor with a box in it. And he's like, Here. It's a little white box. I open it and there's the ring. And he comes around to the other side of the desk and gets me off my feet. And uh, he gives me a really big hug and he whispers in my ear, Please say yes. So I did. That was June. And then we got married November 17th in 2014. We did it in our backyard. That's where uh, he decided he wanted to get married, and I was fine with that. I I didn't want a whole wedding or circum. You know, it just felt really weird for the two of us to go through the whole pomp and circumstance of like a dress and the flowers and photographer and crowds and everything. And in the end, it was just us and his best friend Larry did the ceremony. His wife and his son were witnesses. And then afterwards, I walked up the stairs into my kitchen, and I cooked us all dinner.
1: (laughs) Ten months after the wedding, though, Felicia began to notice changes in Steve. We had just gotten back
0: from visiting my sister up in Oregon. My parents had rented a little fishing cabin on the Mackenzie River, and it was beautiful it was green and lush and cool and Steve started looking a little unsteady on his feet he had always had bad knees but he never he never was awkward or stumbly or anything and he fell twice while we were there he just lost his footing and just went crashing to the ground and I kept asking him, you know, are you dizzy? What's going on? He's like, I don't know, my leg just gave out. I also noticed that he wasn't being as talkative with my parents as he usually would be. He would just quietly listen to the conversation but he wouldn't really engage, which was really weird because he and my dad got along really well and they were always bouncing stuff off of each other. And my dad would try to engage him and it was like, Steve would listen and nod and, and sort of talk when he was being forced to talk, but he wasn't really forthcoming with anything. And then we went home, and I had, I had chalked it up too. Steve was preoccupied with um, a play he was going to be in, and he had been spending a lot of that trip trying to memorize his lines. And I would run lines with him, and, and he would get them at first, but then he'd forget them again. And it was very frustrating for him. So we get back to L.A., and he starts working on them again. And his best friend, his friend Larry, comes over and helps him run lines as well. And he notices that Steve isn't holding on to the information either. The play starts, and Steve is racked. He's nervous. He's never nervous before a play. He he takes great pride in being off book and having all his lines memorized. and He couldn't get off book. He was stumbling through his lines, forgetting them entirely, forgetting his cues. I had never seen him so afraid. And luckily, the other actors on stage, I guess, sensed that something else was wrong because they carried him through that play, through that experience.
1: But even after the show closed, the strange behavior continued. He
0: put his car keys in the freezer. He would talk, and then he would drop a sentence completely. And I'm not talking about like just a sort of mental pause or anything. He would, he would just stop talking like a, a brick wall had come down and he just, there was nothing there. You know, for someone like Steve to not finish a thought or a sentence was a bit of a red flag for me. And so I started keeping notes. I kept a list of all the things that seemed off, the things that he would say or do that, misplacement of things, the questions he would ask me. I had come up with a list of about 20 different things. And then he had already had a doctor's appointment scheduled for the Monday before Thanksgiving. And I said, I'm coming with you. And it was for something completely unrelated. It was a a different doctor's appointment. I said, I'm coming with you. And he was like, okay, what about? I said, well, can you read this list? And he started going through it. And he was like, these are things I'm doing? And I'm like, yeah, you're, those are things you've done. And he goes, that seems really weird. I was like, yeah. And he goes, you're not making it up? I was like, no, sweetie, I'm not. I need to talk to your doctor. And he's like, okay, well, then come along. He was completely acquiescent to it. He, I think, maybe on some level knew that something was up, and maybe he didn't have the language for it or the a way to explain what was going on with him. But... Um, We get to the appointment and I give the list over to the doctor and he doesn't even get halfway through it and he immediately does a cognitive test. The way it works is the doctor tells you here are three unrelated items and in this case it was a knife, a rose, and a mailbox and he goes remember those three items because we're going to do a couple things and at the end of these things I'm going to ask you what those three items are again and Steve repeated back a knife rose in a mailbox and so the whole time that the doctor's running Steve through a bunch of certain like math problems basic math problems and word puzzles and other things things that rhyme i'm thinking knife rose mailbox knife rose mailbox knife rose mailbox you can do it knife rose mailbox and he gets to the end and then the doctor says okay what are the three things and he says knife and i'm like okay got it and then he can't remember the other two things and so then the doctor said okay knife is correct the next one is a plant of some kind and there's silence and I'm looking at Steve and I'm like practically throwing the word at him I'm like rose it's rose and um he was like cactus <laughs> like he couldn't He's like, I don't know. I don't know what it was. And rose. Okay, so the last thing. It's a box that you put letters in. And he I mean, I was like, okay, he practically handed it to you, sweetie. Come on, it's a mailbox. You can do this. And he couldn't do it. He couldn't do the word association. And so I just sort of I slumped. And Steve looked over at me, and he's like, I'm sorry, babe. I'm like, it's okay. It's okay. This is information... This, we needed to know this, this we, so and then why so I look at the doctor and I say, okay what's next and he's like we're going to order an MRI and from this day on Steve you're on disability and when we left his shoulders were relaxed and I asked I said are you okay and he goes I'm a little relieved and I looked at him I'm like huh, you're relieved you want to tell me why he goes, because things have been wrong at work for a while. He goes, I couldn't remember the names of the freeways yesterday. He's been doing traffic here in L.A. for over 20 years. The fact that he had lost that memory, that he couldn't, he couldn't cover anymore. So the doctor's appointment was on Monday. The MRI scan was on Tuesday, and then the doctor called us back to his office on Wednesday to talk about the results. This was the day before Thanksgiving. And he sat us down and he said, "Okay, you have a rather large tumor (laughs) right in the middle of your brain. It it was right in the center, a little to the left. It was right next to his thalamus. Unmistakably there.
1: A biopsy confirmed that Steve had an advanced and aggressive type of brain cancer, glioblastoma multiform. It also confirmed that removing it wasn't really an option. Every
0: tumor is operable, technically. But you end up having to sacrifice a lot to get a tumor out. And the position and size of his tumor was such that if he had opted to get it removed and get treatment, um, we would have had to destroy a large amount of healthy brain tissue to do that. And ultimately there was no promise that it would actually yield anything good. And he was already suffering from some cognitive dysfunction and um, experiencing aphasia, he wasn't able to kind of put his words and sentences together. I wanted to hear somebody care about what his last days were going to look like. Because this was going to kill him one way or another. There was no denying it. It was the most aggressive form of brain cancer you can get. And it was in a place that we couldn't get to without essentially making him paralyzed and unable to speak or eat or feed himself.
1: This was going to kill him. And I wanted somebody to tell me that. With major surgery off the table, Steve and Felicia decided to regroup. She took leave of absence from work, and Steve started radiation therapy to see if it would at least improve his quality of life. You know, the kicker with the
0: radiation is apparently it gets much worse before it gets better. And it did. It got worse. Um, And he, he did three weeks of radiation every day and um, he was such a trooper about it. You know, it was a long drive. The drive was actually more punishing than the radiation. From our house to UCLA, depending on the time of day, if we didn't get the right window for the appointment, it could take us two hours getting home, and that was just a little much. But, you know, he went through three weeks of it, and then this w- in January, he started having some really severe chest pains um, one night, and so I called 911 and we had him rush to the hospital and he had um, a double pulmonary embolism. Apparently, a common uh, result of having brain cancer, and they're not really sure why, but you develop clots in your legs and when you do that they travel upward and the first place they usually go to is to your lungs. And they can kill you. Pulmonary embolism can, can totally kill you. And it almost, it almost killed him, but we got him to the hospital, and um, I kept thinking, like, please not here. Steve had made it very clear that he wanted to die at home, and I was wondering if I had made a mistake by calling the paramedics. So he was in the hospital for about 10 days after that. And um, that actually ended up being a break week for both of us because he now had 24-hour care attendants who could get him whatever he needed on a schedule. And I actually was able to get uh, a good week's sleep for the first time in over a month.
1: Did that episode change how you went forward? Yeah, because it gave us time. We were able to think.
0: And since Steve was in the hospital, he wasn't doing radiation treatment. And so some of the swelling in his brain that was caused by the radiation was going down. And he started having more moments of of some lucidity. And we started talking. I sat down with Steve, and I was like, okay, babe, they're going to ask us to come back to UCLA. And his eyes would get all wide, like, ugh, I can't believe I have to do this anymore. (laughs) And um, I'm like, we need to make some decisions. You can continue with radiation and maybe even start chemo if you want, but here are the numbers. And I would tell them—I'd repeat everything that he had heard in previous doctor's appointments but maybe didn't remember— Um, how the chemo would affect him, how his quality of life would be, but what was the potential for him having more time being alive, and was that important to him? And I asked him the questions the same way each time, and each time he had the same answer. And he said, I want to stop. And I brought him in, and... I asked them to re explain everything that they had told us before about treatment. And I said, Steve has made a decision about what he wants to do. And so I kind of turned it over to him, hoping that this was going to be one of those moments of lucidity. Like if it was a moment of confusion, um, it would have been very difficult to move forward in the direction that he had, had told me. So I just kind of, but I, it had to come from him. It had to. I couldn't be the one making that decision for him. And so I said, do you want me to leave the room? And he goes, no, 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 stay. And then he said, I want to stop. I want to stop treatment. I don't want to do this anymore. I want to go home. To UCLA's credit, they had the social worker in the room with the oncologist, and they didn't fight us on it.
1: So you chose, he chose, the quality of time over quantity.
0: Yeah, because the side effects for chemo ranged from fatigue and exhaustion to your sense of taste changing to outright discomfort and nausea. And the things he loved most still in the world were... Being able to sit up and and engage with people like me or Larry or any of his friends, Um, he was already experiencing a huge amount of exhaustion. He was sleeping close to, at that point, eighteen to twenty hours a day, and then the time that he was awake was like in twenty or thirty minute segments. And he wanted to eat. Food was a huge part of his last few months. I'm I'm a trained chef and a food writer and. I put everything into making what I felt were gonna be his last meals the most delicious, customized, Steve-oriented menus I could come up with. And the thought of him not being able to to taste those things and have his favorite food suddenly taste bitter or, you know, because your your taste buds change in such a way that things that would have normally brought you comfort end up being gross and And really off-putting, and um, he didn't want an end of life like that. He decided we decided that we were going to close this chapter of of his cancer we were we were not going to treat to uh, give him more time. Any medication that he received would be to make him more comfortable or more at ease, and that that was that was our only motivation going forward he was going to die he was going to die but the part that punched me in the gut was after we said that this was it when Steve Steve said he wanted to stop um the next question that Steve asked was how much time do i have and and a lot of doctors really hesitate to give that Because it's different for everybody. You know, you tell someone they've got two weeks, they end up living two years. I mean, there's anecdotal stories over and over again of people who defy odds and statistics and whatever. And um, in this case, he looked us straight in the eye, and he didn't really hesitate. Before, we would always ask, like, how much time does he have? And they wouldn't say. And,
1: And this time, he's like, two to three months tops. The weeks passed. Felicia cooked for Steve. Friends visited. They talked as much as they could. But in April 2016, nearly three months after stopping treatment, Steve started to slip away. He had stopped being verbal about two or three days prior. Like
0: he, a bunch of people had come over to say their last goodbyes to him. And he had been talking to some, and then as more people came, he started shutting down and just squeezing hands or nodding or whatever he can no longer make eye contact. His One of the aspects of brain cancer is you lose a lot of physical neurological function. And in this case, he um, he lost control of his eyes. And so they were kind of locked in a sort of upward gaze. He was like looking up at the back wall or ceiling behind him. And um, in order for him to see me, I had to kind of come behind his head and, and engage him that way. And when I did, he would kind of, refocus on me a little, then blink his responses. He had taken to squeezing my hand at night in answer to questions. He was still in his own bed. He was in our bed. Um, And I still slept next to him. And I had ordered a medical bed for him after he came home from the hospital from his embolism. On the off chance that he would want it, that he would decide that's where he wanted to be that he could be more comfortable in that and he he didn't want it and at one point he'd actually sat with me on the edge of the bed and he's like do you want me to move into the medical bed I said sweetie no is that what you want he goes I thought you got it so that you wouldn't have to sleep next to me anymore broke my heart I'm like no babe (laughs) I got that in case you wanted it in case you were tired of being there and you wanted something like this this is just in case, if that's what you want. He goes, I can stay in my bed? I'm like, yeah, you can stay in your bed. And, you know, I would go to sleep holding his hand, and he would, throughout various points in the night, he would squeeze my hand, or he would, he would kind of rouse me a little bit, and I'd stroke his hair or, or talk to him. And um, the night before he passed, he stopped squeezing my hand He wasn't responding to me as much, and his breathing had changed. And um, I was like, well, I, I still need to—I I should I didn't know how much time he had. I, don't, I have no familiarity with this. I've never shepherded anybody through this before, so I didn't know what the signs were. And the, the hospice workers told me some things to look for, but nothing was manifesting the way they described. So I thought, well, he could be days away from this still yet. I don't know I I had no way to read it and um so I started turning him over because I was gonna at least he was gonna be clean I was gonna make sure that he was he was clean we still went through our hygiene routine and and all of that and as I turned him over his eyes just like got really big and he started coughing and um I thought, well, I better hurry up. Something told me I needed to make this quick. So I cleaned him up and then I brought him back down and his eyes were wide open. His mouth was gaping open and he was sort of gurgling. And I call hospice. Um, It was a Sunday. So our regular hospice nurse wasn't on call. And so I called them and I said, he's having trouble breathing. And their immediate response was, we'll use the oxygen machine. I was like, well, it's in pieces in the other room. They never assembled it. And, um, oh, we can walk you through it, was what she said. And I said, no, I need somebody here you don't understand. And she's like, no, 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 it's really easy. You can look at a YouTube video. I'm like, no. I actually had to argue with them. This was about 8, 8.30 in the morning. And my friend Stephanie had arrived at that point and i'm on the phone with hospice trying to i was she was listening to me argue with them to get them to send somebody and finally they agree begrudgingly to send somebody she shows up at 10 and the first thing she says to me she goes why isn't he in the medical bed I'm like cuz he doesn't want to be cuz he wants to be in his own bed and she actually argued with me about it and i was i was like do you, my husband's probably dying right now you really want to have this conversation now stephanie thank god bless her she um she came in and ran interference because she saw me turning various shades of purple um and um i ended up getting up on the bed next to steve and she started doing sort of a a preliminary examination of him and she pulled back the sheets and his legs were purple and i remembered that was one of the signs that they said that his his death would be imminent and um she looked at down at them and she looked up at me and she goes, you know what that means, right? I said, yes. Uh, I was like, tell him. She looked at me like, what do you mean tell him? I'm like, tell Steve what's going on. He can still hear you. And so I made her explain to Steve that he was dying. These were the signs that we were seeing. We were going to do everything we could to make him comfortable. Um, we ended up administering a drug that was supposed to help with the breathing. And it did a little bit, but... Ultimately, um, it was still pretty labored breathing. Uh, Kristen had come over, Larry's wife. And I was like, you got to get Larry here. And within 15 minutes, he just, the breathing had a rhythm to it. It wasn't super labored like it was before. It was more even, but it was definitely uh, weak and um, I kept stroking his hair and, and telling him that it was okay, that I would be all right. I had read in a book, it was a terribly selfish thing to say, but um, I had read in a book that sometimes um, the dying will cling to life if they think that the people that they love are, are going to suffer too much or if they aren't going to be taken care of after they're gone. And it, it was, it was a recurring theme in a couple of different books that I'd read. And so I had this whole script in my head of how I was going to tell him that I was going to be okay, that had all these people go- that were going to take care of me and that I was going to be able to stay in the house and that I had a great job and a great boss and that everything was going to be fine. And the only thing I could remember to say was, I'll be all right. You can go. And I just kind of kept repeating that over and over again. And, um, Stroking his hair. Larry was silent for the most part. Um, I think he was just overwhelmed because he was losing his friend of over 35 years. They had been buddies. Confidants. They had seen each other go through so much and here he was holding his hand and watching him disappear. And um, In truth, I guess we'd been watching him disappear for some time. It was sort of a slow burn, but this was like it. This was... This was the final, uh, final breaths, actually, and, um, I was holding his hand, and his breath was sort of even, and then he stopped, and I, I kind of gasped and started sobbing, and then he took another breath, and then he didn't, and, um, And then he was gone. From the point he said no, no more, to when he took his last breath was exactly three months.
1: He pushed it right up to the time post. (laughs) 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 <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> you know the funny thing was the day he died. Stephanie used to work with him here at KPCC and so she understood all the parlance of radio and and he died at uh 11:05 a.m. and uh it was on a Sunday. And you know, after the initial shock and and turmoil of of losing him, I kind of wandered out of the bedroom and um She looked at me, and she goes, you realize he died at the top of the news hour. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And, and, you know, it was kind of, I guess it worked out, because, you know, that's when we started getting the calls from, like, the L.A. Times, and... KPCC had launched their, they had their own obit in the, in the hopper and they were just waiting for me to kind of make my announcements before they put it out there. And then LA Times did something and then, you know, he was, he was a part of a large number of people's mornings. He was just really good at his work. I mean, I I go back and I listen, I'm lucky. I have all these tapes of his, his voice from all the work that he did. And I go back and listen, I'm like, God, he really was great. (laughs) He really was just amazing. How good was he at this job? His voice was just silk. And, uh, and I got to hear it every day at home. You know? Unproduced. <laughs> I got the raw deal.
2: I'm Steve Julian, the host of Morning Edition on KPCC. In January of 1983, I was working at a small radio station in Riverside, and we hired another afternoon news anchor. He and I would work together and report on national, international news and stories from all around Southern California. We told people that Karen Carpenter had died. Ronald Reagan was president then. Well, six weeks after he started, KPCC would call and offer the guy a job, and that's how Larry Mantle wound up here Thankfully, we became fast friends, and I pestered him off and on for years to get me a job here, and that finally happened 15 years ago. Best job decision I've ever made. Got to tell you, it's a pleasure to wake up at 3.30 and come into these handsome studios and talk to you. I love it. So on behalf of Tony and Nick and Lisa and Brian, the morning crew and everybody who comes in early, thank you. Thank you very, very much.
0: The weeks following Steve's death are kind of like a very blurry watercolor to me. I don't remember a whole lot of specifics, except I do remember just thinking, this is weird and so bizarre, and it seems so informal, and I wish I had done something a little bit differently because you deserved
1: that. Had he talked with you um, before dying about about what his wishes were for after, for what he wanted to be done with his body and and how he wanted to be remembered.
0: he didn't care <laughs> He was very clear about that um he he felt very strongly that at that point he didn't give a rat's ass what happened to his physical form. Um, at this point, if I'm gone, I'm gone. And like I'm not I'm not looking back I'm not sticking around and so I was like well we could I think I'll probably opt for cremation and I tried to involve him a little bit in the, in the decision making process and sometimes it got really difficult for him to actually voice like approval or disapproval of any one thing I was doing because it was I mean it's hard to hear to have that conversation with someone you love about what they're going to do with your body <laughs> like I'm still in it <laughs> <laughs> I don't really want to talk about that right now um, but um, we toyed around with a couple of really um, interesting ideas and one of them was like what if I sweetie what if I what if I take like a little bit of you in my pocket whenever I go to see a play and sort of do like a Shawshank Redemption and just sort of shake you out Of my pant leg onto the floor, (laughs) and that way I put a little bit of you in every single theater in Los Angeles, and that way you never miss a show. And he he was he was really tickled by that idea. (laughs) He was like, "Oh, that sounds great." He was like, he liked the creative part of it, you know. And I said, "What else? What else do you want me to do?" And he goes, "I I was like, do you want me to inter you with your dad over in Palmont?" He's like, "No, no, don't bother. That's just too much money. Don't waste it." It's like just, just you know. Do, do whatever you want. Put me in a box. Don't put me in a box. I don't care. You just do what you need to do.
1: So what did you need to do?
0: It's changed. Um, I had read an article about um, people who had kept the ashes of loved ones in their home and when they then passed away the people who were left behind had to figure out how to dispense with this other person's ashes and um i didn't want my family to have to deal with that on top of having to deal with everything else if something happened to me i didn't want them to have to think about how to properly um, dispense with steve's ashes either and so my goal what I set out for was at the end of five years, I would be completely divested of Steve's ashes. And that I would distribute his, his ashes, you know, when I would go on trips for work or when I would travel to, to new places. I'd always take a little bit of him with me and, and find a place that was appropriate and, and deposit some ashes. And then I, would, um, I created a, a Google map of all the locations where I, uh, I put his ashes. And I also gave some to friends um, who were traveling or doing other stuff. And I said, "Okay, here you go. Just tell me where you end up putting them, and I'll put it on the map." So you know, Larry took some, and I gave some to a friend up north. And um,
1: where were some places that you took him?
0: Well, he's he's up. I have to I have to catch myself because I I catch myself saying he is up by something, and it's not him. Mm-hmm. It's it's his ashes that are there. I, I, I catch myself every once in a while I have to remind myself that this this box of disorganized carbon and dust is not him what made him him was how he carried himself and the organization of the frame and, and the voice that came from it and the mind that was in it and uh, what I have is just what's left of the form that carried him and so I have to keep reminding myself it's like It's not Steve, it's Steve's ashes, it's Steve's remains. That said, these remains carry with them a sort of symbolic identity of what's left, Um, either in our grieving process or or a psychological understanding of, of them hopefully not always being gone. You still have this, this pile of ash and dust. They've all been either places of import to him or places of, of beauty. So I, I put him, I put his ashes <laughs> <just laughs> up by the KPCC transmitter up on Mount Wilson, above, on the mountain above Los Angeles. Um, I went up there with Stephanie and we, we had a little moment of, of wine and ash burying
1: right underneath the transmitter. I think he would have probably appreciated that. Felicia and Steve's friends placed small amounts of his ashes in KPCC's studios, at NPR headquarters, in Paris, in the rivers and lakes of national parks. And then, uh, I just, I kind of stopped.
0: I, it's daunting
1: to be responsible for someone's remains like that. More than a year after Steve's death, Felicia's work took her to Montreal. And for the first time, she didn't scatter any of his ashes during her travels. Part of it was I just didn't find the right spot. Part of it was it just I wasn't
0: in the frame of mind to do it. Um, I I felt no urgency or need to put his ashes anywhere in the city or around the city beautiful city, I loved Montreal it just didn't feel appropriate or right and that's when I started thinking about I was like, okay, but if I don't do this then that means I've got to just find another place to put stuff and then I it stopped feeling like a purpose-driven thing I don't know, it just... It's it's becoming harder for me to feel driven to do this. Not because, you know, I don't love him or I don't want him to have these amazing resting places all over the world. Um, I, I'm still trying to wrap my brain around the reasons why. It's not for lack of love or desire or purpose. It's just things are changing. And... I I keep hearing him in my head saying, I don't care what you do. Other people might care, but, you know, he, he never... It's like, I don't care what you do. Do what you need to do.
1: Have you decided not to even bring the ashes with you somewhere? Yeah,
0: um, I, didn't, I purposefully didn't bring them to Kauai. I have a boyfriend now, and we had made this trip arrangement. And originally I'd asked him if it was okay. I was like, do you mind if I bring Steve's ashes with me to deposit? And he ultimately I was like, no, I'm not going to do it because we had planned this trip, and it was going to be for us. It was our first big trip together anywhere. I wanted to just go and enjoy those locations with with Bobby. I didn't want him to feel like he was sharing this space with Steve. And he shares space with Steve every day, and he does so willingly. He does it in really fun and interesting ways. He was helping me clean out something in the office and he knocked a binder or a folder off of Steve's side of the desk. And I was in the other room at the time, and he picked the stuff up. I heard him put it back on the desk, and he said, Sorry, Steve. And I'm like, like my heart just started pumping peanut butter for <laughs> I was like,
1: Oh, my God. He's, uh, he gets it. While Steve's ashes may not come with Felicia on every trip now, she still plans to scatter them all by the five-year mark. And I think what
0: my mode going forward will probably be is larger amounts in places where i i've obtained permission so that i don't have to dance around rules or regulations so that i have the permission legally to do what i'm doing and to understand that if i don't fully dispense with him his ashes in all these different places by the end of 5 years it's not a failure to ultimately take whatever is left and find a beautiful spot along the Pacific Ocean and do what countless other Californians and Americans have done, and that's, you know, an ocean internment of whatever's left. But again, you know, Steve... Steve is in my head saying, I don't care. In fact, I think... Part of him would be like, why are, you, why are you stressing out about this? Why are you fussing about this? Why, why is it so important for you to do this? Why don't you just take what's left right now, walk yourself out to the ocean, and, and be done with it? Don't carry this around with you anymore. And, and I would respond, because, sweetie, I'm not ready to do that yet. I'm not there. i never threw anything away, so i I'd uh, been sort of slow to clean the house out, and he had this tool chest in his office, on his side of the office, that I wanted to repurpose for um, an art drawer, like an art cabinet.
1: When Felicia went to clean it out, she found a written list of the projects they were supposed to finish for the house's anniversary.
0: As we completed them, he had written a line through them and then he wrote next to it the date of completion. And I remember us putting that list together, like we were in the office, sitting across from each other like we always did. That list, I'd I'd forgotten that it existed. On the one hand, I was proud of the progress we'd made. We'd managed to get a lot of it done. And on the other hand, it reminded me of uh, a stolen future. Yeah, grief is complicated. (laughs) (laughs) You know, once you've lost somebody, who you've cherished once you've lost a spouse or, or a parent or someone who you loved and who truly loved you back, you, you become fundamentally and physically changed. Like there's something chemically that just changes in you, I'm convinced of that. And you may fundamentally still be who you are, but your perspective has shifted. And I guess cancer's kind of a crucible that way. You, you burn off all the unnecessary stuff. And what's left is the very fundamental basics of a good life. What makes up a good life? And that's love, honesty, truth, tenderness,
1: kindness, joy. Our storyteller today was Felicia Friesma. And special thanks to Steve's station, KPCC, for recording Felicia's side of the conversation and sending over audio of Steve. You can read her writing at FeliciaFriesma.com and see the map of Steve's ashes at our website, HumanNaturePodcast.org. If Felicia's voice sounded familiar, she told us a story about a haunted hotel in episode 30, The In-Between. I'm Caroline Ballard. The show is produced by Alana Elder, August Law, and Annie Osborne. Our digital producer is Anna Rader. Our senior producer is Aaron Jones. Micah Schweitzer is the show's executive producer. Our theme song is by the LA band Caught a Ghost. Human Nature is a production of Wyoming public media.
2: It's human nature.